Hey everybody, this is Nate Smoyer, and you're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. This is the show where we sit down with the leaders in real estate and technology to find out what they're doing to transform the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. If you've got an interest in real estate and technology, stick around. You're in the right place. Hey everybody, we have an awesome show planned for you guys today. We have the CEO and founder of Compound, a company that's based in New York City. Her name is Janine Yorio. And Compound is a real estate company that is making a technology play to create publicly listed city-specific residential real estate funds called City Funds. Now, they plan on launching. They're going to IPO three of these within the next year. And it's incredible what they're bringing to market. You don't have to have a certain investor worth. You don't have to put down a hundred grand to invest. You literally could, once they get these funds launched, which the first one will be Manhattan, own a slice in New York for the price of one share. You guys sit back, relax, listen into the show. Janine also shares a lot of wisdom towards the end of the show. I really particularly like some of her answers, both about Compound and how she reads and learns. So listen in. Hey, Janine, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you, Nate? I'm doing well. Yourself? Doing great. Now, I would like to establish for the record, before we get into anything, that prior to the show, Janine took my punchline that she Uh has the face for radio. But truth be told, I'm the one who has the face for radio. Well, I have a body for radio. How about that? (laughs) Body built for radio. (laughs) I'm really pumped uh, to have some time here. I appreciate you taking time to join us on the show. Before we go too far into the banter here, I want to give you the mic Please let everyone know who you are and what you do. Sure. So my name is Janine Yorio, as Nate explained. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Compound Asset Management. We are a real estate asset management firm that's powered by technology. And we do one thing very well. We have a proprietary product called a city fund that invests in residential real estate in one city. Each city fund is publicly listed and is designed to track the residential real estate performance of one city. So, for example, our first city fund is a Manhattan-focused city fund. And we envision coming to market with more city funds in the future so that we have city funds for San Francisco, Seattle, Miami, London, Austin, Paris, Hong Kong, etc. And we are reimagining how people can invest in real estate in a way that intuitively makes more sense than the current vehicles. People think about real estate, first they think about residential real estate, and then they think about where it's located. And so we're just bringing a more intuitive approach to the way that real estate investment is open to a broad network of people. Wow. You've already covered half the show, but we'll try and unpack that. So you (laughs) done, wrap it up. Done, wrap it up. So, okay, let's unpack that a little bit here. So, and we'll go one, bit by bit here. You mentioned that you're, you're reimagining the way in, in versus the old system of investing in real estate. So break that down. What is the big problem that Compound is solving? So if you are interested in gaining exposure to residential real estate in a market like Manhattan, the average purchase price at the low end is about a million dollars for a condo, which is particularly well-suited for investment. The average purchase price is more like $2.8 million. So there are very few people who can afford to dabble in Manhattan real estate. And if you take that even a step further, building a diversified portfolio, meaning more than one apartment, would cost on the order of tens of millions of dollars. So that asset class, even though it's well understood by all of the people that live and work here and a lot of people who visit here and foreigners who understand why it's an attractive market, 
that investment is that strategy is closed off to them. And so by creating a securitized product, we can broaden the universe of potential investors who can get into that asset class. Got it. So in, in other words, basically, you don't have to buy the whole condo. You now get a share or a piece of the condo. Exactly. And, and why do we think now, though? Why, why bother doing this now? Aren't we at the peak of the market? We are at the peak of certain markets. We are definitely not at the peak in the Manhattan market. So the Manhattan market peaked in 2015 and has been steadily declining for the last three years. We're actually in a deep slump. Volume has fallen off. Price per square foot is down almost 20%. And a lot of people don't know that because the brokerage firms have done a really great job with their PR firms of controlling the narrative and the story. And it's actually a super interesting time to start buying in Manhattan because this is the deepest downturn the market has seen in over 20 years. There's a perception that after the Great Recession in 2008, that the market was worse. Well, after 2008, the market in Manhattan, talking about a very narrow geographic area, Manhattan residential real estate prices fell for exactly one year before they started to return back to their historical levels. After 9-11, which was in 2001, the market had a downward trend for six months before it started to recover again. So the interesting thing about Manhattan, because of the scarcity value, because there is such a strong foreign and local bid for the property here, the downward dips tend to be very short. This particular dip has been going on for three years. It's the longest, deepest decline that the Manhattan market has seen in over 20 years. So it's actually a really interesting time to buy Manhattan real estate. And we predicted it will be one of the best Manhattan buying opportunities that our generation will see. I did not. No, I, I think I looked through your investor packet and I, mm-hmm. I saw that chart, but I did not realize it was that significant. I had no idea. There's an app. I got to find it. I got to find it now, now that I'm thinking about it. But like I found it a few years ago and it was charting the vacancies of retail mm-hmm. throughout New York City. And the and that narrative wasn't being told of like the increase of vacancies in retail. Is that also, uh, you, are you seeing that the same? As Absolutely. With- like you walk down Madison Avenue, which the traditional thinking behind Madison Avenue is that it's a flagship location. It's not necessarily designed to be the, the brand's most powerful store. So there were always a lot of stores up and down Madison Avenue that figured, how could that make sense? How could they possibly pay that rent? And they've done it as sort of a marketing tool walk down Madison Avenue today and look, I don't know the exact numbers. I'm not a retail expert, but just intuitively, anecdotally, I see vacancies, I would say probably almost 20%, which for Madison Avenue, I mean, that's some of the best retail in the world. And a lot of it is sitting empty. So retail is definitely in a slump and it's not like real residential real estate where I think that's just a matter of there being mispricing. Retail, I think, has to figure out what to do with itself. I think with the rise of Amazon and e-commerce and an entire generational shift away from buying things in person, I don't know what's going to happen to all the retail space. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's going to open up for more innovative models, kind Mm -hmm. of like what you guys are uh, predicting here and that people are going to want new ways of investing in real estate. Yeah. The question is, are they going to want to invest in retail? I don't know. Yeah. We're we're focused exclusively on residential real estate here at Compound. Okay. So are you then uh, just going straight into, you mentioned condos. Are you also doing, you know, duplex style buildings? Are you going for the whole building when you guys buy into your fund? So we define residential in Manhattan as three things, multifamily apartment buildings, individual condominium units that we either buy one at a time or in bulk. 
like we could buy five, 10, 20 units from a developer mm-hmm. or single family homes, which in Manhattan, those are townhouses. You don't really have standalone freestanding homes here. You have individual right. townhouses. Yeah, I understand. So I want to talk through a little bit. Um, you, you mentioned city funds at the start of the show here in the description, and it sounds like you're planning a different fund per city because this, to- this is totally different than the existing REIT models that are out there where they might have some buildings in Chicago and then some in Nashville and where else. Why go that strategy? So we watched the entire equity investment landscape change dramatically over the last 10 years. As you may be aware, ETFs began in 1993 with State Street. They created the first ETF around the S&P 500. And since then, there's been an enormous proliferation of ETFs. There are over 6,000 of them today. Investors love them, whether you're a small retail investor or a big pension fund and endowment. People like them because they have low fees, they're liquid, and they're really straightforward. So if you want to buy or sell the S&P, if you want to buy or sell a basket of telecom stocks, ETFs, turns out most ETFs do a better job of investing in that industry than actively managed mutual fund or hedge fund style strategies. And so the equity investment landscape has changed, and the conversation has been more about fees and correlation. And that same change has not rippled through the real estate space yet. In real estate, you still have closed-end funds where the managers of those funds are running around and telling people that they're the best investors ever. Or you have REITs where the management team is telling you they're the best decision makers ever. And in both of those situations, you're deferring the decision of where and when to allocate your capital to, to the management teams inside those companies. You're paying hefty salaries for the privilege of doing that. At Compound, we believe two things. First of all, that the returns you get on your real estate portfolio are largely determined by the market that you're in. So if you invested in Austin 20 years ago, you look like a bull market genius, right? Right. And it has it's great if you're a great investor, but it was more about picking that market, getting in there, buying and holding. We also think that real estate is an intensely local business. And so the people that are best suited to make investment decisions are, are the people who are physically on the ground in that market. As you know, when you're investing in real estate, the decision about which block, which corner, which view can have a tremendous impact on the value of that real estate over time. And if you're investing from a desk in Atlanta about where to invest in Charlotte, we believe you're at a disadvantage to the guy who's in Charlotte all the time. He's been there for 20 years. He knows the market like the back of his hand. So the way that we create each city fund is with a local asset management partner who has a track record in that market, who knows exactly what the local demand drivers are down to that individual block. And we defer to that local manager when it comes to making decisions. Now, we have a say and we have an overarching strategy that the investment manager has to follow. But ultimately, we make sure that we find a great management partner on the ground and we use their local expertise to help us make investment decisions. That's phenomenal. That's That's different than what exists today in the market. Yes, entirely. So then I have to naturally, I have to ask you though, Right. So if I were to, all right, I'm going to pony up some some dough and send it over to Compound in New York. How do I reduce my exposure, though, to the ebbs and flows of the Manhattan market? So first of all, we wouldn't advocate that you put 100% of your real estate allocation into Manhattan ever. We would say, you know, you don't, you may not know Manhattan that well, but say you have a million dollars to invest and you've earmarked $100,000 of that to go into real estate. Somewhere between five and $20,000 might be a, a smart investment for you to put into Manhattan. And as we have more funds in different markets, you could decide to overweight Manhattan, underweight Manhattan, allocate into markets you like better. And by the way, if you change your mind tomorrow, 
you'll be able to sell because it's a fully liquid security that trades intraday. So you can get out of that investment as easily as you got in. And that's a pretty significant differentiator from other funds because they, they often ask for a multi-year commitment, right? Typical closed-end fund has a seven to 10-year life. So you invest in year one, they're allowed to invest the capital over the first three years. And then you usually sit back and have to wait until they sell the asset. You get some distributions in the meantime, but ultimately the return of capital comes at the end of the fund's life. Can I 1031 a sale into a city fund? Kind of. You can do something very similar that has similar tax benefits, and that's called an uprate. And that is a strategy that is well known and well understood in the REIT sector. Each city fund is taxed and structured as a REIT. So all the things that are good about REITs are also good about city funds. And one of those is the tax deferral benefits of an up REIT. So you can contribute an asset to the REIT, excuse me, and you get shares in exchange. And that event is not a taxable event. So you don't pay taxes on that conversion. You only pay taxes when you sell the shares. So okay. it's for benefit for estate planning purposes. So okay. if there are two grandchildren that both inherit in a building and one needs the money and one would rather hold it forever, that's often a difficult decision and one has to buy the other out and it's, it's complicated and usually ends up with lots of fighting. With upreads, we've seen this happen in the like the office building reads have used upreads to grow their portfolios. Wealthy families have a big apartment building. They can then contribute that building to the bigger fund, get shares back and distribute the shares to each grandchild radically. And then each grandchild can then make their own decision about when to sell and when to trigger that tax. Interesting. So this could really be ideal for, you've been a long time investor, you've been playing in real estate, you're really looking to get passive, but you believe in real estate. Hey, let's get out of the the management ownership business of all the properties. Let's put our money in a safe market that's proven over time, introducing compound. Yes, Yes. And if you own residential properties in Manhattan today, if it's a really big building, you might be able to do a, an operate transaction into one of the big publicly listed diversified REITs. But if it's a small building, like a mid-block building, or it's individual condominium units, nobody nobody will take that unit. There's not a, a REIT that's set up to accept individual condominium units, nor would you likely as the owner want to convert your ownership stake in a Manhattan condo into a diversified portfolio of Chattanooga, Nash, you know, Atlanta, Dallas, garden-style multifamily, right? You want to contribute to like for like. And so the value proposition as both the investment side of things, but also as a tool for estate planning is an important one, especially as we think about how we grow our business. Got it. You mentioned uh, a few things about like uh, other public companies or other public REITs. Mm -hmm. And I I thought I read that you intend to take compound public. Is that what I understand? We intend to take each of the city funds public. So each, so city fund, New York, city fund, Paris, et cetera, will be its own publicly traded company. Right. So So they'd be able to trade a lot of companies though. (laughs) It's just like an ETF business. Think about it like, like iShares. iShares has dozens, if not hundreds of iShares. So okay. yes, each one of these funds will have its own ticker and you'll be able to trade cities like you trade stocks. So you can get long Manhattan, get long Paris, get short Austin, get long San Francisco. And as an allocator or an individual investor or a pension fund, it gives you a new way of placing a directional bet that you don't have today. So if you're reading The Economist or I don't, you look too hip to read The Economist, you probably read Monocle. <laughs> Right. And you read about how Tampa is the next big thing. How do you place that bet? What do you do? Can't do anything. You got to call a guy who knows a guy and maybe go there with a broker or see if you know somebody who's got a development deal. He's looking to take a hundred thousand dollar check. There's no way to place that bet. Mm. And that's 
that's where the big opportunity lies for Compound, which is creating a new way to invest in an asset class that people understand, but which is very difficult to transact from afar. Got it. So why why go the public route though? So you're looking at it from the consumer's perspective, really, of why to go public versus ease on your end, because it doesn't make it easier for you to go public, does it? So going public gives you the advantage of liquidity. Going mm. public and listing on the New York Stock Exchange is how you can guarantee liquidity. And it gives gives access to the public markets that make it very easy to, to buy and sell your shares. And that's the advantage of going public. That's why ETFs are publicly listed. It's, it's to create the liquidity. The alternative is a private company that wouldn't be liquid or a closed-end fund like the one you referred to earlier. Right, right. You've done this a few times before, right? I've worked on a bunch of REIT IPOs. I've never built city funds like this before. And my partner, Jesse Stein, who's behind me, has also worked on REIT IPOs as well, yes. Yeah, that's. I've only talked to a few people who've either tried taking companies public, or you know, I've read the stories of people doing it. That alone seems like uh, an incredible feat. I don't have the chops for starting it. You're correct. I do not read The Economist. Is that a magazine or website? That's a magazine. I'm just messing. Okay. <laughs> I, I am somewhat aware. Let's. So let's. Let's. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this one, but. Can any investor participate in Compound now, or is it reserved for only accredited investors? So actually, we are not open to investment from individual investors at all right now. We are preparing for the initial public offering for the first fund. And so we are we are hunkering down and getting ready to list. And once it's listed, literally anybody, anywhere, will be able to buy shares after the IPO. You won't have to be accredited. It'll be like any other publicly listed stock or ETF. You'll be able to buy it through Robinhood through Fidelity, through E-Trade, um, any brokerage platform, because it will be a publicly listed stock with a ticker. Wow. That's even better than some of the... Okay. So, because the other option for non-accredited investors is try to find a Regulation A fund where they can do a smaller you know, contribution. But here, I literally, if a share costs 50 bucks, I could buy one share, 50 bucks. And now... I thought this was a hilarious pun. I could literally own a slice in New York. Yeah, we, we, we've talked about it that way before and people get confused and it sounds like a timeshare. And But yes, that's exactly the idea. It can yeah. own a slice of New York that you can own it and sell it really easily. And that's that's hard. That doesn't exist. But just let's, let's be clear. You could okay. today, as a non-accredited investor, you could buy one of the publicly listed REITs. That, that is always open to you. You could find a reggae offering and invest through one of those type of platforms, or you could go out and buy something on your own. So you do have options as a non-accredited investor. You just don't have an option like ours. Yeah, I, I, I think it sounds really interesting. You, you almost, I'm like right on the edge of like considering putting money into the stock market. I might think about it. Yeah, I can't, I can't advise you on that, but... <laughs> There are lots of publications out there that you can read that you could get smart. I guess this would be a good time to insert that all things discussed here are not financial advisement. Uh, right. Please get out qualified individuals or licensed individuals for all that advice. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll put that at the top of the show as well. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I mean, you've already answered like a handful of questions of like, are they liquid and, and minimum investments? I really appreciate how thorough you've been. You, you, you rattled off the top, but can maybe the next five markets. So we're going to start with New York. But what are the next few markets you're going to follow up with after New York is up and running? So Miami, San Francisco, LA, London. Okay. Only one of those is outside the US. Mm -hmm. Is that going to be a US traded fund? Yes. It will also be listed on, on a US exchange. Yes. Okay. 
And, and why those cities? Well, the American cities are fairly straightforward. Uh, Miami is a big city for foreign investment the way that Manhattan is. San Francisco is just a really strong market. It has some very unique attributes to it related to its being the center of our technology economy. And LA is another global capital. It's sort of a unique place that's widely understood. London is interesting because of timing. So London is like New York in the sense that it's a global financial capital. It's been a global financial capital for literally centuries. Mm -hmm. We believe long-term that it's going to continue to be a very strong market. But right now, prices are very depressed due to Brexit. And so there's a very interesting entry point into the market. It's also a very popular market for foreign investors. And at Compound, we're building products, not just for Americans, but for foreign investors all over the world so that they can access these great real estate markets too. Yeah, because there's significant barriers even for foreign buyers, even if they have the cash. I think about it sometimes like, I love Paris. You know, I've always liked it. It's beautiful. If I wanted to invest in Paris real estate, and I'm a pretty sophisticated real estate investor, it's not that straightforward how to go about doing it. You know, where would I start? And and so that same feeling that I feel in a market where I'm not a native French speaker, I don't really know the peculiarities of that market, is how foreign investors feel when they come to the U.S. And so figuring out how to talk to those different pockets of wealth around the world in languages they understand with terminology that they're familiar with, using partners that they think are credible is exactly how we intend to sell these products globally. That's that's so interesting. I get a little bit of a flavor of that uh, where I'm at because we're, you know, 20 minutes from the border. We're way up there northwest, north like of Seattle. Sarah Palin. Like Sarah Palin, you can see Russia from the coast, right? <laughs> The other day I saw Russia. I was just looking out over the bay. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, so when I worked as an agent, you know, I would get calls from Canadians and they would say, mm-hmm. I've got, you know, so much cash. I need to put it in some real estate. I just need financing the rest. I was like, well, I don't have anyone who knows how to do that. Like, yeah. I didn't have many, even though we're right on the border, there was still mm-hmm. so many barriers for them. Mm-hmm. And the bank's requirements in Canada were different in the U.S. and the way they wanted to hold the property and all that kind of jazz. Yeah. So obviously some people have figured it out with Vancouver. Um, Vancouver on your list of future cities? I think it could be. I mean, it's not, it's not something we've talked about historically, but I understand it is a global market and it's been growing at a nice clip. So certainly at some point in the future. Have you ever been there? It's pretty. I have, but it's been a long time. I went on a family trip as a child to Alaska and we drove through Vancouver. So it's been a while. Oh man, I need to do that road trip. Yeah. Um, let, let, let's keep moving here. So, okay, you're not taking, like investors can't participate right now, but obviously there's some marketing that has to be done mm-hmm. to get you guys out there, to make sure people are aware of you. Mm-hmm. What have you been doing that's helping Compound really get the attention it needs in order to be able to take each fund public and, and be successful? We've been doing a lot of work on content and we've we've built out a pretty robust content strategy you can see on our website, which is getcompound.com. We think that there is a big, you have to educate people about why investing in a market like Manhattan makes sense. A lot of real estate investors are blinded by current return. And that's certainly an important component of real estate investment. You see a lot of these crowdfunding websites are like 14% return. And a lot of those assets are, yes, they're hard assets and they're real estate, but they may not necessarily be appreciating assets. They may be depreciating assets where at the end of five, 10 years, like the amount of money you need to renovate it might actually exceed the the actual value of the asset there. I think you're referencing Memphis. I'm referencing lots of different investment opportunities that I see. And I'm not saying that income is ever something you should 
not look at. It's still important, but Manhattan is a market that doesn't trade on the basis of income generating potential. It trades like a growth stock. It's like buying Apple. It's a it's an appreciating asset. It's a store of value. It's on an island. It's 22 miles square with an 840 acre park at the center. So it's all about scarcity value. And it's not going to ever compete with a market like Memphis when it comes to current returns. But historically, if you look at the market over 10, 20, 50, 100 years, it's outperformed almost every major investment product, whether it's the S&P 500 or the bond index or most other major real estate markets too, which is why so many wealthy families park their money in Manhattan real estate and just leave it there. They buy assets, they Wealthy families, one of the first things they tend to do, whether they're from Dallas or Dubai, is they come and they buy a nice apartment in Manhattan. They never sell it. And there's a reason why, because historically, that's always proven to be a good investment. And I'm not saying it always will be a good investment. I can't promise that to you. But if history is any any indication, then it's a really solid investment. And it's certainly one that I feel I want to overweight in my own personal portfolio. And there are a lot of really smart people that have concluded the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I only... Pay- I pick on Memphis because it's one of those cities that, you know, if you can do your Google research on this, but it's been on the list of breakout cities for multifamily investing for like the last 10 years. It just hasn't broken out. You know, you can look at the values across the board and it's been one of those cities where you see, you know, like you said, like there's some operations out there that are turnkey residential, you know, get in 10% cash on cash return, but the asset may stay the same value. It, it may only be worth 50 grand today as it is in the future. But unfortunately, if that's the case, I mean, you're losing money against inflation. You're not actually getting a positive return on that asset if you ever exit. Right. And if you want to get really technical, we're talking about cap rates, right? And cap rates are, for the most part, they're at all time lows. So that on a cap rate basis is worth worth more than it's ever going to be. And if you believe that we're going to regress back to mean cap rates and go back to historical levels, then what does that mean for an asset in Memphis that's trading on the basis of a low cap rate? It could actually be worth less than $50,000 in the future because that income stream is going to be worth less if you apply a cap rate to it. So, So people don't think about that necessarily. And I'm not saying people are dumb. People are really smart. But... Income is only one component of why real estate is an attractive investment class. And the other is because it's a hedge against inflation and a store of value, and it provides an opportunity for capital appreciation. And that's where we think markets like Manhattan, San Francisco, Miami, London make a ton of sense. Love it. Let's shift the conversation a little bit. I want to talk about some fundraising. So obviously you've done some fundraising. You, you guys have raised a seed round up to this point, right? We raised an angel round. Yeah. I'd rather not talk about that if we can. We're in the process of, of announcing something. So if we can talk about that later or okay. podcast, I'd pr- prefer to do that. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, we'll, we'll blaze right past that one and just uh-huh. jump right to, let's talk about the space in general around real estate tech and fundraising. So there's a lot of money pouring in from outside of real estate into real estate. And that's both on the tech side and on the, you know, directly to the assets. First off, why why do you see this happening right now? Why is there so much money going into the tech side of real estate? And do you see this continuing for the next few years at the, you know, about the same rate? So real estate is the world's largest asset class. And so the when venture capital thinks about big opportunities, I think that they realize that there's a huge opportunity here with lots of different verticals that could turn into unicorn companies. If you look at some of the biggest breakout hits over the past decade, they're real estate related. So Airbnb disrupted hospitality, which is a real estate related business, and WeWork 
disrupted the office industry, which is a real estate related business. And a lot of VCs and, and specifically the real estate companies missed out on those companies. They, they dismissed them as a flash in the pan early on and look at it today. I believe I might be speaking out of turn, but I believe Airbnb has a much higher valuation than Starwood Marriott, which is the biggest hotel company in the world. Yep. So, and if I had told you that was going to happen 10 years ago, you never no very few smart investors would have ever, ever betted on that outcome. So I think having witnessed so much transformation in the real estate industry happen from the outside, now the VC investors are looking very carefully to see what other things could happen there because it's such a big industry. There's a much higher likelihood of unicorn outcomes there than there is in the more niche industries like, I don't know, pet care, which are big markets, but they're still not as big as real estate. So I think that's that's been driving a lot of the interest and prop tech generally is something like you mentioned early on that you're in the real estate space and you often say to yourself, there's got to be a better way, right? There's so much of real estate, whether it's on the property management side or construction, that it's just very manual. Like a lot of real estate offices, they still have fax machines, right? I mean, (laughs) that says it all. If there's an industry that still requires a fax machine, there's clearly some innovation that has yet to occur. And so if you can apply a little bit of prop tech pixie dust and generate investor better investor returns on the world's largest asset class, there's an enormous opportunity. And that's why there's so much capital seeking those different different companies and trying to figure out which one, which one or which several are likely to be the biggest hits. Yeah, I, I agree. And I laugh at the, the fax machine because, you know, I I left the being a, a real estate agent business in 2017 and there were still faxes as far as I remember, there was still like pizza special faxes rolling in and like, who knows, whatever spam junk mail that would come in on fax machines. That's the first thing I just thought of was someone's got a fax machine and they're sending out their listings through a... <laughs> I, you know what? It always amazes me that when some of the commercial banks that we use ask us to send a wet signature, they won't accept... Not only will they not accept like a DocuSign, like an electronic signature, but they want like actually blue ink on paper mailed to them. I cannot for the life of me figure out how a big supposedly tech forward commercial bank can still rely upon things like wet ink signatures or fax machines. But lo and behold, it's the case. You can't, you can't get it notarized? Yeah, exactly. Can you get it notarized? There's the there's a great company called Notarize, which we actually had on the on the show a few episodes back. Okay. Twenty four seven digital notary. You yeah. can notarize anything with them. Like honestly though, if we really decide what does a notar what does notarizing even do? I've often wondered, like, what I guess it demonstrates that the signature is really your signature. Valid. Someone who's licensed to say yes, this was true and Yeah, no, I understand at its core what it's meant to do, but it just seems to me like an additional layer that doesn't really provide that that much. Yeah. Space. On the front end, it's validating. On the back end, it's reporting to who needs to know about it. Mm-hmm. So that might be a fun episode. That was interesting that we we had, uh, we, we learned about, you know, like when you sell a boat, who gets that sale? When you sell a house, who gets that sale? When you sell yeah. a car, you want to talk about a complicated business. I mean, you're only working with government all day long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so check them out. I'll have to send you the, the link after, after we're done here. Let's keep moving on here. We're getting towards the bottom of the show mm-hmm. and I want to move into probably my favorite segment of the show. It's a game I called for the future. So for the future is a segment where I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Janine, are you ready to play? Was I supposed to prepare for this? Nope. This is perfect. Okay, good. (laughs) 
this is it's not a lightning round, but you know, I mean, you just okay. off off the off the dome, off the cuff. Okay, first okay. one's easy. You got this. What does Compound look like one year from now? One year from now, we have three publicly listed city funds that are each approaching a billion dollars in size. Wow, yeah. very specific. I love it. You guys do smart goals in in house all the time. We're all about smart goals. <laughs> All right. Question number two, what will the housing market, and that's outside of just Manhattan, look like one year from now? One year from now? I think one year from now, we're probably still in a bit of a correction. Okay. Question number three, when will the next big boom or bust happen in real estate? I don't know how you define big boom or big bust. I think we're in a little bit of a slump now. I think this is it. I think this is the dip. The next one? I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball on that. I feel like there's something here to do with modular housing, but I don't know how to fit it in. Like uh, the shipping container or just in general modular housing? Yeah, I think like that. I could see how that becomes like the next, like the next seven years become tons of capital pouring into modular housing and it becomes like this new gold rush and and that turns out to be a bit of a disappointment. I don't know. There's, I, I think it's, it's a backdrop for a lot of conversations about housing is the idea of making factories that can gin up houses really quickly. And I could see how that could be the next gold rush in the real estate industry. <laughs> Not to digress too far, but there's a part of me inside that really wants to see the Sears catalog home come back. Oh, I love the Sears catalog homes. I'm obsessed. I just think it should be a thing. Someone's got to do it. Sears, if you're listening and you really want to save your brand and a little bit of what you got left, bring yeah. back the catalog home. Yeah, I love that idea. Question number four, the final of the of the four here. What's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of technological advances? How long it takes to close on a transaction. It takes, you know, even if you buy something all cash, it still takes at best 30 to 60 days to close. And I think the best thing that will happen in real estate is really increasing the speed of transaction and eliminating a lot of the layers, the, those things that are connected with, with fax machines and paperwork that don't really have to be. So it's more of an automated process that creates a much faster turnaround cycle from the beginning of the sale to the closing. And you're saying that with the filter of uh, of Manhattan properties, like you're you're referring to, like commercial yeah, and multifamily. Manhattan's particularly slow because there's often an additional layer, which is the managing agent inside the apartment. So there's yet another person with a fax machine who has to be receiving and sending. But the same slowness per- pervades all of the all of the U.S. markets and, and probably abroad as well. I'm not as familiar with the international markets, but it's just it's just not a quick process. It's, it's buying and selling real estate is complicated. There are lawyers and there's government agencies and appraisals and banks and these things are all not designed to move quickly. I would just like to point out that someone who is taking company a company public and you're going to do multiple taking them public is acknowledging that real estate is complicated and that's exactly why that's exactly why I, I'm so passionate about this topic because it shouldn't have to be so hard. It shouldn't have to be so laborsome. Costs shouldn't be so hidden. And so I, I just get really pumped when I get to speak with people like you who are working to change the system because it's it's clearly just not meant for the common folk, let alone even regular investors who still get tripped up, mm-hmm. uh, even if they're savvy. So I just think it's really cool. We're going to move on to the last three. Janine, these are questions more focused on you. So our listeners get to learn a little bit more about you personally. Okay. okay. It's all good. First one, what are you reading these days? Kind of books or websites or even magazines, since you brought that up earlier, are you reading? So I try to do a good mix of like fun reading and work reading. I just finished reading Ray Dalio's Principles. 
And now I'm reading Good to Great, which I can't remember the author, Jim Collins, I think, which is great. And on the fun side, I don't know. I haven't read a fun book in a while. I have to think about it. I read a lot of blogs, a lot of newsletters from VCs and and people like that. Yeah. Okay. I have to ask you about Good to Great because I've got a bone to pick with Collins. Okay. Well, I haven't finished it. I'm still reading it. Okay. This is a spoiler. Don't like, don't spoil it for me. Have you gotten up to his discussions about Lee Iacocca? A little bit. He's kind of down on Lee Iacocca. He's down on celebrity CEOs generally. Okay. I just, I just want to point out that he disqualifies Lee Iacocca as being a great leader based on Chrysler's performance after his, you know, his departure. Mm-hmm. But, but just as you finish the book, reflect on the companies he features in that book and then tell me if his theories are valid. You have to believe in his methodology and the way that he defines a successful company. It's that 15 years of outperformance relative to the industry sector, which is a very specific definition. Right, right. If you don't believe in that, then the whole book is, you're not going to be convinced. Right. It's still valuable read. Good stuff. All right. Question number two, who are you learning from? Is it not fair to say the books that I read? I think when you read a book, you get to share, it's almost like uh, like delving inside the mind of somebody else. Like you spend, I don't know, it takes 30 hours to read a book. I'm spending 30 hours listening to your deepest thoughts. And so I love reading about people who have solved hard problems. I'm obsessed with Winston Churchill. I love reading stories about venture capitalists who made their money the hard way. I love uh, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I love Zero to One. I do love founder stories. I love the, the podcast, how they built it. So hearing, I think that people often gloss over how hard it is to do things and they, and they talk from the vantage point of having succeeded already. And they often forget about all the little battles they had to fight along the way. And I love being reminded that every great company that was built started with the vision of one or two people. Every great company started out small. Every great company overcame a ton of adversity to stay in business. And it's very rarely an overnight success, but journalists and people generally love the story of the overnight success. So oftentimes history is rewritten so that it sounds that way. And it's very reassuring as a founder to read stories that remind you that there's really no such thing. That's awesome. I love it. All right. We'll get to the final question here. What inspires you or what help keeps you inspired? Um, Well, I have two young children. And so I know that they are watching me critically every day. And I want to make sure that when they look back on their childhood, they feel like all this time that I've invested in my company was worth it because it's time I'm not spending with them and that they respect the choices I've made. They respect the company that I've built. And especially for my daughter, you know, it's being a woman in business has a different set of challenges. And I hope that the way I've chosen to navigate them is something that she can feel proud of and hopefully even look at as an example. Yeah, that's so awesome. I, you know, for, from my perspective, I look to my mom for work ethic, what she did to, to get us where we needed to get to, you mm-hmm. know, so it, you're absolutely right. Your kids watch you with like that magnifying glass of yeah. how did she do it and what does that mean to them? So that's yeah. very cool. This has been awesome. Yeah. I think this is great. Great. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Nate, for the time today. Thank you for your podcast. I like what you're doing. I appreciate that. Before before we head out, I want to give you an opportunity here. If people want to connect with you or they want to dig in and learn more about Compound, where do they go and how do they do that? So they can email me directly. I'm hyper-responsive. It's uh, one of my fatal flaws. My email address is Janine, J-A-N-I-N-E, 
at getcompound.com. And obviously you can visit our website, getcompound.com and read scads of information about what we're doing there too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate all you had to share. I'll be watching. I can't wait to see you guys succeed. One year from now, three city funds. Billion dollars each. Billion dollars each. There we go. Love it. Thanks, Nate. All right. I'll see you. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to the Tech Nest podcast. Hey, don't forget, you can get on the email list. You never miss an upcoming episode. That's technest.io. That's T-E-C-H-N-E-S-T dot I-O. Get on the email list. Uh, go to the App Store, whether you found us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you found us. Leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. And if you've got a guest or someone that you'd like to recommend, or if you think that you'd be a great guest on the show, hey, send me an email, nate at realteampanda.com. That's nate at realteampanda.com. See you guys later.